If you have your Bibles or Scripture journals, and I hope that you do, I want to invite you to open with me to the Gospel of Luke in chapter 12. Gospel of Luke and chapter 12. We're going to be in verses 49 through 59 this morning. So 49 through the end of the chapter. Uh, if you don't have a Scripture journal and you want one, there are some on the welcome desk out there. Go ahead and take uh, one of those, and that will be our gift to you. Um, so today we're going to wrap up chapter 12, which seems like a, a fitting place to take a two. We're going to take a two-week break from Luke, okay, just for Easter. Uh, of course, next week is Palm Sunday, and then we have Easter after that. But then the week after Easter, we'll jump right back in in chapter 13, okay? So just a, a, a brief pause, two-week pause from Luke. Um, but for today, let's go ahead and finish chapter 12 and verses 49 through 59. If you got it, say, I got it. It also be behind me on the screen in my translation for you to follow along there as well. Uh, let's go ahead and read this together. Luke 12:49. Holy Spirit says, "I, Jesus, came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. From now on, in one house there will be five divided, three against two, and two against three. They will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. He also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once a shower is coming. And so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say there will be scorching heat and it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and the sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? Why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge and the judge hand you over to the officer and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. Amen. It's God's word. May God write eternal truths in all of our hearts. If you're going to be a Christian, then you can no longer be my son. I wonder how you would feel if those words or one similar spirit or message were spoken to you by someone close to you. How would you respond if the closest person to you said those words? Well, these words uh, are spoken more often than perhaps we realize, and these words in particular were spoken to a man named Afshin Ziafat by his father many years ago upon hearing that Afshin had become a Christian. Ziafat is an Iranian-American who was raised in a Muslim home, both in Iran and in Houston, when his family fled during the Islamic Revolution of the late 70s. When Ziafat was in high school, he began to read a little New Testament that he had uh, hidden at the bottom of his closet that was given to him by his English teacher when he was in second grade. And she told him, hang on to this, and when you're old enough, take it out and read it. Well, eventually, Ziafat would read it, and in God's providence, he found himself in various circumstances and around various people, which would end up uh, leading him to give his life to Jesus. But at first, he didn't tell his family. Listen to what he says in his own words. He said, my father had always been the most important person in my life, the guy I'd always looked up to. I'm ashamed to say that I decided to hide my newfound faith from him and the rest of my family. I would sneak out to go to church intercept mail from the church I was attending, and hide my Bible. 
Well, eventually his dad found out. He found the Bible, and he had seen other evidences in his son's life. And this is what Zephat says. He says, he sat me down and said, son, what's going on? There's something different about you. I said, dad, I'm a Christian. He said, no, you're not, young man. You're a Muslim, and you'll always be Muslim. I said, Dad, the Bible says that if I trust in Christ alone for my salvation, then I'm a Christian, and I do. My dad said, Afshin, if you're going to be a Christian, then you can no longer be my son. He says, everything in my flesh wanted me to say, forget it, I'll be a Muslim. I didn't want to lose the relationship with my dad, so even I was surprised when I opened my mouth and said, Dad, if I have to choose between you and Jesus, then I choose Jesus. And if I have to choose between my earthly father and my heavenly father, then I choose my heavenly father. My father disowned me on the spot. I had to lose my father to follow Christ. I wonder what goes through your mind when you hear a story like that. You've probably heard stories like this before. But for a lot of people, in our context, they seem so distant, don't they? They seem like outliers. They, maybe, maybe since we typically hear stories like offshoots in the context of Muslims converting to Christianity, we think of familial disownments or disputes happening primarily in contexts like that. In other words, they're not the normal Christian experience. Or perhaps we think they happen in places that, you know, aren't so as enlightened and accepting and tolerant as we are. But now, here's the question that begs to be asked. What does Jesus think? Does he think familial divisions should be few and far between? Or does he see them as part and parcel of the normal Christian life? We may be surprised by his answer, and it's one that he undertakes in our text this morning. In this text, Jesus does what he tends to do when we truly consider his words. He surprises us. He challenges us. He makes us consider how we live in the world as followers of his. So in this text we're considering, he tells us why he came, what the results will be for our identification with him, and a warning or a call to respond, and those, who, uh, those will serve as our three points together. Okay, let's call our three points. I'll give them to you straight away. Reason, result, and response. Reason, result, response. So first reason, or let's put it another way, why Jesus came. What's the reason why Jesus came? So as Jesus addresses both the crowds and his disciples, he tells them explicitly, doesn't he, the reason why he came. Now, before we get into what Jesus says the purpose of his coming is, it's important that we consider the implication of even the the phrase, I came to. Why? This implies that Jesus is someone who came to the world, right? As someone who already existed before the nativity. Jesus wasn't simply born, you understand. He wasn't created being who was born only of woman and either decided or was chosen to do the things he did and say the things that he said. Rather, Jesus had already existed before the incarnation, what we celebrate at Christmas, and has come down from outside of space and time to take on flesh. He has existed in the Trinity from eternity's past. He is uncreated creator. We need to know that. As the Nicene Creed articulates, Jesus is God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence of the Father. Through him all things were made. This is crucial doctrine that we have to grasp. And it's one that less and less self-professing Christians seem to understand. You maybe heard me share this with you before, but just last year, 
Ligonier Ministries and Lifeway Research released their biannual State of Theology report, where they interview all kinds of people and ask them what they believe about Christianity and spiritual things. And they found that 43% of self-identified evangelicals agree with this statement. Are you ready? Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. 43% of confessing evangelicals. And that's a jump of 13% in two years. Friends, that's heresy. Let's call it that. It's heresy. Without Jesus being very God of very God, Christianity falls apart. There's no gospel without that doctrine. Everything is undone if Jesus isn't pre-existent God come to take on flesh. Without this doctrine, what Jesus says next in our text doesn't make much sense. Nor will we ever understand the gravity of what he did if we don't let it sink into the heart, our heart of hearts the fact that he was and is God come to earth. So why did he come? Why did creator God take on flesh to dwell amongst us? Well, among other things, says Jesus, to cast fire on the earth. But not only that, did that surprise you when that was the first thing that we read this morning? Not only that, but he wished it was already kindled. Now, if you were to ask most people why Jesus came to the earth, I doubt very much that many would say to cast fire upon it. But that's precisely what he says. What does he mean? There are two senses, okay, in which uh, we must take this to mean. The first idea is the idea of judgment. The fire in the Old Testament was associated with judgment, and it's something that John the Baptist understood as one of the reasons the Messiah would come to the earth. We read a long time ago in chapter 3 of Luke's gospel, he said, John the Baptist did, that the axe is already laid at the root of the tree and that every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into what? The fire. Does this mean that Jesus will literally make fire rain down from heaven like Elijah did? No, but his coming necessitates judgment on those who reject him and continue in their rebellion against God. That's the fire he brings. But I said there's two senses, didn't I? There's a second sense in which fire is meant, especially in Luke's writing of this gospel and in Acts, of the Holy Spirit descending. The Spirit will judge people's hearts to determine who will enter the kingdom and who will face the fire. But he's also, he'll also refine the righteous. So this pictures together, these pictures together tell us that Jesus brings fire for the unrighteous in the sense of judgment and fire for the righteous will bring refinement. You think of a, a, I know we're far removed from blacksmith, but you think of a blacksmith, when a blacksmith would seek to purify metals, he would put them through fire until they were liquefied, and the dross or the impurities would rise to the top where the blacksmith would skim them off. So through this process, the metal would become pure and undefiled to the point that the blacksmith could see his own reflection in the metal. The question here then is, will Jesus' work cause you to be purified or cast off? A decision must be made. And this is what Jesus does constantly, isn't it? He forces us to make a decision. There's no neutral ground. Will you be among the wheat or the chaff? There's no middle. Will you be a tree that bears good fruit or the tree that is cut down and thrown into the fire? Because here's the thing about what Jesus says. Someone is going to be judged for your sin. As you, you have to get this. Someone is going to be judged for your sin. 
your sin, my sin, they're piled so high to the heavens that they simply can't be disregarded. They can't be forgotten with a wave of the hand. People who ask, people I've heard this, people ask, why can't God just forgive without Christ coming to suffer and die? Why can't he just wave his hand? Well, they neither understand sin nor judgment nor justice or forgiveness. Jesus came to bring fire and he wished that it were already kindled because he is more tired of injustice and suffering caused by human sin than you are. He came to bring fire because satisfaction must be made for sin, for our transgressing God's holy statutes, for our rebellion and casting off the rule of God. Someone has to pay. But then here's the choice Jesus gives us. Either you will endure the fire, or he will. You see what he says next in verse 50? I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. What he's talking about? What's he talking about? He's referring to his own atoning, substitutionary death on the cross that looms before him. See, now, now we know Jesus has already been baptized in the waters, right? We've seen this by John. And he did that not because he had unrighteousness in him, but so he might identify with us. But this baptism he talks about here is the waters of divine judgment. Jesus says that he must be plunged into the waters of the judgment of God. He must be submerged, inundated with the wrath of God, and this causes him to be in distress because he wished he could just get on with it. You know, Mark's gospel helps us here because he shows us how the baptism Jesus must undergo is one and the same with the cup of wrath that he must drink. Do you guys remember the scene? They're heading to uh, Jerusalem. Uh, Jesus is on the road with his disciples, and, and the sons of Zebedee come up to him, and they say, Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask. Do you guys remember that? It's kind of like, have you ever had a kid who tells you, just say yes? I'm not going to tell you what it's for. Just say yes, and then you'll find out afterwards, right? That's what they kind of do to Jesus. James and John do this. And Jesus isn't going to play their silly games. He says, well, what is it that you want? And they say, can we sit on your right and your left when you come into glory? And Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. And I imagine James and John are probably thinking, yes, we do. We want to sit on your right and your left hand when you come into your glory, right? But then Jesus asks this. This is the important key. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. See, they reply they're able, because they don't understand what Jesus is saying, but Jesus is saying that he will be plunged into the wrath of God until he is completely submerged. He will drink the cup of God's wrath until every last drop is consumed by him. He will endure the judgment of God as one who is perfectly righteous and innocent. He will experience hell in place of sinners. For the guilty, though himself, he had no guilt. He was the perfect lamb of God who died as a substitute in the place of sinners. As the hymn says that we'll sing here after the sermon, bearing shame and scoffing rude in my place, condemned he what? Stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Guilty, vile, helpless we. Spotless lamb of God was he, full atonement can it be. Hallelujah, what a savior. Now, just as we live in an age, I said this last week, where judgment's not allowed, right? Judgment's not allowed, is it? It's just not allowed. We also live in an age that it's uncomfortable with God being one who has wrath. 
to make matters worse for us enlightened moderns, that wrath that God has is aimed squarely at us. Who deserves wrath from a holy and just God? I do. You do. Can we come to grips with the fact that our sins run this deep? Can we come to grips that we are the ones who deserve the fire that Jesus casts upon the earth? Can we admit, truly admit, that the just deserts for our sins isn't a slap on the wrist, but receiving the full wrath of God? Well, we must if we're to get the gospel. If not, we won't see our need for the gospel. We'll soften sin and we'll utterly miss the cross and the glory of Christ. Jared Wilson tells of a time he had spoken at a Christian college and a young man approached him after he was done speaking. And the young man wanted to know about Wilson's view about Christ's sacrifice and made it plain that he thought the idea of wrathful God was distasteful. He used words like bloodthirsty and child abuse. For him, there didn't appear to be any room in the cruciform symphony, says Wilson, for the penal part of penal substitution. Christ was our substitute, sure, these people deny, but he did not receive the wrath of God, they say. My response, said Wilson, is typically, then who does? If Jesus didn't receive the wrath of God, who does? In pursuit of an atonement that is less bloody, less dark, less offensive, we may be stumbling on one that is less effectual, less powerful, less, well, atoning. The devil loves this development, he says, because if he could get us to stop thinking about God's wrath at the cross, he could get us to stop thinking about how our sin is an offense to God, which means he could get us distracted from God's holiness and thus our need for salvation. The cross isn't only about wrath, of course, but if we lose this vital aspect of Christ's atoning work, we lose the very heart of the good news. Jesus says, I must do this. I must be baptized under the fire of judgment. I must drink the cup to the dregs. He must do this. He is under divine imperative to be plunged beneath the flood via the cross. You understand, Jesus is not a hapless victim. He is a willing substitute under divine imperative. But now here's the decision point, yes? For you, my friend, someone has to bear the wrath of God for your sin. God is just too holy and just to allow rebellion to go unpunished. But the choice is this. And again, two options. Will you bear the fire of judgment yourself, or will you repent and give Jesus your allegiance and thus be the recipient of divine pardon? You guys see the irony of the cross? Judgment and love meet. That Jesus is plunged into the wrath of God because of his great love for sinners. But because God is just, don't you see? Judgment must be rendered. He makes the offer to sinners, come receive grace and mercy and pardon through the broken body of the God-man or reject him and endure the wrath yourself. But see, if, if, if you are someone who receives the pardon of Christ, if you are someone who repents and believes and gives Jesus your allegiance, this will put you on a different path with different priorities, with a different ethic, living for a different world than those around you. And you know what this will do? It will cause division. So now what Jesus says next? This brings us to point number two, doesn't it? Point two, result. Or to put it another way, what identification with Jesus will do. 
result or what uh, identification Jesus will do. We've seen throughout Jesus' discourse in Luke that he is, he's constantly saying that one must pick a side, isn't he? Constantly forces decisions. He's constantly say, also saying that to follow him is costly. He never promises a life of ease for those who would submit to him as king. Therefore, he always beckons would-be followers, count the cost. Here he asks the question, that he immediately answers, doesn't he? He says, do you think that I've come to bring peace on earth? See, there again, he tells us why he came to earth, right? But his answer isn't one most people would give, is it? If you ask most people, Christian or not, if Jesus came to bring peace on earth, what would they say? Yes, they'd say yes. Perhaps all of our minds, you know, we waft back to Christmas time where we sing about peace on earth and picture a cute baby, cute chubby baby in a picturesque scene in an activity in a quiet town. Even non-Christians would say that Jesus came to just tell people to not judge and get along and be nice to one another, to bring peace and only peace. Isn't that fair to say? Now, it's certainly true that Jesus did come to bring peace, but of what sort? He came to bring peace between God and man who are at enmity because of sin. This is true. He came to be peace between people who are united on Christ's person in the church. But did he come to bring peace, say, in your family? Did he come to bring peace between you and your unbelieving friends? Did he come to bring peace between you and your non-Christian neighbor? What's Jesus say? No. No. Not peace, but division. And now this jars us. Does this jar you, what Jesus is saying here? Are are we sure Jesus meant this? Shouldn't I get along with everybody? Shouldn't I be kind and compassionate? See, Jesus isn't saying that to be a disciple means to be a jerk. Okay, A lot of Christians are pretty good at that. All right, He isn't saying that we should be offensive for offensiveness sake. He isn't saying to be rude or unkind. But he is saying that an implication of truly following him will result in strains, even breaks, in your closest relationships. And yes, he meant it. Joseph Hellerman, in his excellent book that you should all read, called When the Church Was a Family, said this, Passages like these, along with the strong group orientation of the world in which Jesus lives, suggest that Jesus demanded of his followers a radical exchange of loyalties. The issue for Jesus is not simply commitment to God versus commitment to our natural families. Rather, Jesus challenged his disciples to transfer their primary family allegiance from one group, the natural family, to another, the family of God. You know, we're shocked by Jesus' words here, aren't we? We want to find, don't we want to find some way around this? We want to know why allegiance to Jesus would result in familial decisions. Can't we just kubaya? Can't we all just get along? Jesus' question would be, how can there not be relational strains if you're following me? How can people not have a problem with your devotion to me? That's Jesus' question. You think about it. Just think about it, okay? If you are living with the end in view, like we said last week, You will seem strange to your unbelieving friends and family, yes? If you're living for another world, they're living for earth. You're living for a world you can't see yet. 
Will this not seem strange? If you adopt the ethic of Jesus without compromising, your family members whose opinion on sex and gender and marriage and materialism and greed and power that are adopted from a fallen world are going to have a problem with your insistence on biblical principles. You'll seem antiquated and out of touch and narrow. It doesn't mean you don't love them, but it does mean you stop sanctioning and promoting and excusing or ignoring your family's sin and rebellion against the holy God because attachment to Jesus necessitates literally seeing the world differently. If you're living for Jesus, if he has your primary allegiance, your allegiance to earthly relationship will take a hit because you are devoted primarily to someone else while your unbelieving family and friends are living for themselves in this world. Says James Edward, verses 52 and 53 remind hearers and readers that Jesus and kingdom must take precedence over the most intimate and ultimate human social bond, the family. A decision to allow the kingdom's ultimate authority into one's life thus divides one from the world, but it does not alienate one from the world. The vision might seem discordant and even offensive to our inclusive age, but is a fundamental property of God's relation with the world. See, in light of what Jesus is calling his followers to, in light of the radical nature of the gospel, here's the question, okay? If there is no division in your relationships with unbelievers, whoever they might be, why is that? In other words, who's compromising? Because whether we want to admit it or not, all of us will be tempted to exchange some truth or some ethic from Jesus if it means peace with our family and friends. You have to unite on something. And if you're uniting with unbelievers, what is it that you're uniting on? It can't be Jesus because they don't know him. So what is it? Did the prophet Amos not ask, do two walk together unless they have agreed to meet? What are you agreeing on that your life is copacetic and worry-free? Someone is compromising. Is it you? Again, this doesn't mean you go out of your way to divide from your family. That's not what he's saying either. Nor is he saying you should be offensive in your person. It's the gospel that offends. But my friend... If we are living for another world and a better king and a better kingdom with a whole different otherworldly set of allegiances and ethics, division is inevitable, is it not? Alistair Begg said, now, what he means by that is clearly not that his ultimate objective was division, but that the effect of his accomplishment of salvation would be division. That when a life is changed in its core, in its direction, in its values, in its focus, in its purpose, in its dreams, whatever that change may be, it changes the dynamic of interpersonal relationships. You guys remember uh, the beginning of Pilgrim's Progress, don't you? You know, Christian said to his family, this is how the book starts, he said to his family, he realized that he had a burden on him. And he learned that the city was going to be burned with fire from heaven, and they're doomed unless they find a way to escape. You know, his wife and kids, the people closest to him, they looked at him like he was crazy. They thought maybe a good night's sleep would do the trick. But, you know, the next day, he was still concerned. This made them now angry. 
Then they started to make fun of him and say harsh words about him. Then they ignored him. And Christian knew he had to go to the wicked gate to rid him of his burden. So he ran from home. And as he ran, his family called after him. His neighbors mocked him. Some threatened him as he ran. And Christian put his fingers in his ears and ran on shouting, life, life, eternal life. You know, after some distance, some neighbors caught up to him and he, and he asked why they came. And they said, to persuade you to go back with us. They were confused that he would leave the comfort and friends behind and wondered if he could be persuaded, but he couldn't. He gave up all to go to the celestial city. And won't the reaction be similar to our following of Jesus? Shouldn't it be? Shouldn't there be people who have known you your whole life who wonder why there's a change in you? And maybe don't like it. Shouldn't there be people who wonder why you're so adamant about living for another world? Shouldn't there be people who think you're too dogmatic because you're committed more to truth than the shifting waves of the ethics of a fallen world? We might think or say, Jesus wouldn't ask me to divide from my family. And that's because we're still thinking in terms of a Christ who wouldn't ask too much of us. We're still thinking of a king who asks nothing, demands nothing, and expects nothing. But the real Jesus constantly calls us to choose sides. And if the choice must be made between Jesus and even our closest relationships, Jesus says to choose him or stand against him. Tom Schreiner says it like this. If, a, if, family, members turn, if family members turn against God or have never turned to him and we side with them to please them, we are siding against Jesus. So when we hear a story like the one I told you at first about Afshin, we shouldn't think, ah, well, those things happen in contexts like that. We should actually wonder why things like that don't happen more than they do. Maybe it's because we're going along to get along. Maybe it's because we've embraced or sanitized a sanitized cultural Christianity that's inoffensive as you could get because it's impotent and doesn't actually change lives. Conversely, what will true devotion to Christ as foremost priority and captain of our lives do to our relationships? How can it be true? That we're living a life that strives to obey Jesus and our lives and relationships remain the same. Is that really possible? If we're all born into this, let's think about it like this, okay? If we're all born into this world upside down, because we're turned the wrong way because of sin. And we receive the gospel and the indwelling spirit and we submit to Jesus and he puts us right side up. How is it that we have the same outlook and priorities and ethics of those who are still upside down? And how can we unite with them even if they're a natural family? Won't there be some tension somewhere. When we see everything different now that we're right side up from those who are still upside down. And listen, this doesn't mean you go run out today and see if you could pick a fight with your family. All right, that's all I'm saying. We should, as Paul said, do what we can to be at peace with all men. But if we're devoted to Jesus, the way that he calls for, some tension will arise even among those closest to us, and especially as we call them to embrace 
the way of Christ. What Jesus is saying is that is what we said elsewhere, which is to expect rejection. Will it be all the time? No. Will it always mean being disowned? No. Will it always mean ties will be completely severed? Of course not. But to follow Jesus is costly, and sometimes it will cost relationships. It just will. One commentator said, Those who would reduce Jesus to a sentimental savior of a dotting God have not come to terms with the depth of divine passion, of the wrath and love of God which is revealed in Jesus' word, will, obedience, even unto death. But see, lest we think, before we move on, that the problem lies in the gospel, and it is the gospel that brings division. We always remember it is the gospel that is setting things to right. It is sin that has turned everything the wrong way. Therefore, if there is division, it isn't because of the gospel, it's because of the human heart. J.C. Ryle said this, Let us never be moved by those who charge the gospel with being the cause of strife and division upon the earth. Such men only show their ignorance when they talk in this way. It is not the gospel which is to blame, but the corrupt heart of man. It is not God's glorious remedy which is in fault, but the diseased heart of Adam's race, which, like a self-willed child, refuses the medicine provided for its cure. So long as some men and women will not repent and believe, and some will, there must needs be division. To be surprised at it is the height of folly. The very existence of division is one proof of Christ's foresight and the truth of Christianity. But we have to move on to our third and final point. Point number three, response. Response. Jesus gives an illustration that contains a rebuke in verses 54 and 50 through 56. He talks about division outcome identification for him, and for this he uses a picture they would, they would all know. Everyone in Jesus' audience knew that if they saw a cloud coming from the west, the moisture was coming with it because it was coming from the Mediterranean Sea. Everyone else knew that if uh, a wind came from the south, there would be scorching heat. In other words, they were all able to see the signs in the weather and knew what was coming. Why is it then that they can't see the signs of the times in what Jesus was saying and doing. That's what he's asking. How is it that they are pious Jews who knew their Old Testaments and were missing that the Messiah was in their midst? They're hypocrites, says Jesus, because they fancy themselves as religious people, yet they're missing the one person their entire Bible is pointing to. How is it that Jesus has provided all kinds of evidence, even supernatural evidence, and the people have not responded? How is it that they don't see that fire is coming and that their failure to pay attention to the times has left them in jeopardy? This is an easy illustration for us to see, I think. We have such technology that we can know when some weather event is going to occur, right? Like, let's use a hurricane, for example. We could watch radar. We could see where the trajectory of the storm is, right? We could see when it's going to hit land. We can even see the amount of rain and the wind speed. Well, if you're in the path of the storm, and you can get out, and you don't, who is to blame? Now, the signs were there, right? You were given advance notice. You had the means to respond, but you didn't. So when your house fills with water, and you have to go sit on your roof, that will be terrible, right? But it wasn't unexpected. They could read the signs. They could see the radar. They might even see video of what's already happened at the coast. Why didn't they respond? What will this generation Say when they stand before God and are judged. 
What will they say when they receive the fire of judgment? See, Jesus is saying, you guys are missing what's so obvious. And if you don't see what's going on here and what God is doing in the world, you're doomed. James Edwards says, in appealing to this present time, Jesus implores hearers to recognize that in his teaching and healing mission, in his very person, the kingdom of God is present, and the kingdom of God requires a decisive response. See, you see that word hypocrite, don't you? We're familiar with this word. We've encountered it several times in Luke, in fact. What's it mean? It's to wear a mask, isn't it? To be one thing internally and something different externally. It's to put on a show or a performance before men. See, Jesus' audience are hypocrites. They can read the weather, but they can't read the signs of the time. Hypocrites are everywhere still today, aren't they? Cultural Christians are everywhere. People who say they know Jesus but deny him with their lives and capitulate to the world are everywhere. We live in the American South. My friend, you cannot throw a rock without hitting someone who says that they're a Christian. But how many of them live lives that are indistinguishable from unbelievers? How many shout their Christianity from the safety of their Facebook pages but don't strive at all to obey the Christ that they supposedly love? How many can, in other words, see a cloud coming and know it's going to rain, but miss out on the fact that God is doing something in the world that they are missing because they're too comfortable in the safety of their marginally Christian lives? Last week, we talked exclusively about living in light of the end, didn't we? We said over and over and over again that Jesus can come back at any time. Why do we say that? Because that's what Jesus said. How can we live in any other way but with radical, costly obedience in light of that fact? Are we failing to read the signs of the time that Christ has come into the world and he plans to come back soon to make everything right and bring everything to right and bring fire and vindicate the righteous? Friend, what good is it that you could read the weather and the stock ticker? and all these other things if you're missing out on what God is doing in the world. And that fire is to be cast down from Christ's nail-scarred hand. We, you know, when we read about these people who saw Jesus with their eyes and watched him heal people with a, a touch or a word and saw him cast out demons and saw him speak with authority, you know, I'm tempted to ask, you're tempted to ask, how is it that you could miss all that? How could, how could you miss it so badly? That's not the question, though, is it? The question is not to look at them and say, how could you miss the signs of the time? The question is to ask ourselves, to ask our friends and family members who claim Christ but live like hell, how can we? How can we miss the signs of what God has done, is doing, and will do through his Christ? So these people missed out either because they were blind or unwilling to see. But it's likely because they were unwilling. They didn't see because they didn't want to see. Because then they'd have to do something with that knowledge. Some, it seems, were happy to simply reject Christ and be judged because they were banking on their own goodness and missing their need for an atoning Messiah. And people still do that today. You know, some of you may remember that in March 1980, Mount St. Helens started to rumble. Some of you guys remember that? And it began to emit smoke and ash. Well, volcanologists from all over the world gathered to watch and measure and see what Mount St. Helens would do. Now, within a week, earthquakes, plumes of volcanic ash and steam had become so frequent 
Now, the residents and the vacationers that were in the surrounding areas, they had to evacuate. Everyone except one man. You guys remember? His name was Harry Truman, <laughs> not the president. See, Harry, he was in, then in his 80s. He had lived there for over 50 years on the shores of Spirit Lake, and he, he wouldn't leave. He was skeptical about the possibility of eruption. But if the mountain blew, he said he wanted to be there. If it buried him, that's where he wanted to die. That's what he said. Well, in the days preceding uh, May 18, 1980, the mountain grew calmer. The earthquakes continued. The eruptive activity paused. But on the morning of May 18, the mountain awoke with no evidence, no advance warning, and an earthquake measuring 5.1 on the Richter scale caused an explosion on its western slope, triggering a massive landslide, which was the largest in recorded history. And so this lake was deluged with 60 meters of debris from the avalanche, swallowing empty buildings and burying Truman. For Truman, either he ignored the warnings or he didn't care if the inevitable happened. And people in Jesus' audience were living like that. They either couldn't read the times or didn't take them seriously, or worse, they could read the times and didn't care if they were buried under the Messiah's fire. And people are living like that even still. Some people you know. Some people you love. Some people you will see this very day. And maybe even some of you are living like that. What will you do? If it's you, will you change course? If it's someone you love, will you warn them, even if it costs you or puts strains between you? Jesus is calling for a response. You see what it says in verses 57 through 59? Here's another illustration where someone owes a debt, and they're taken to the magistrate. And on the way there, they could settle the debt. They could settle the account. But if they get to the magistrate without settling up, they'll go into debtor's prison. Now, here's a question. How do you pay your debt while you're in debtor's prison? You don't, right? You can't work. You can't earn. It's too late. Once you get before the judge, it's too late to do anything but be judged and condemned. This picture is saying that all people, do you realize this? All people are on their way to the judge, namely God. And all people owe a debt because of sin and rebellion. That's bad news. Is that bad news? Here's some more bad news. God is going to call every last penny of that debt. You see that word for penny in verse 59? That's the Greek word lepton, which was the smallest coin there was. It, it only took 25 minutes of work to earn that thing. Jesus is saying God is going to expect payment for even the smallest sin. Here's some more bad news. The debt you and I owe, it's incalculable. It's too high. We can't pay it before we get to the judge. We can't even put a dent into it. Payment will never be possible and eventually be too late to pay. We can't try harder. We can't work more. We can't do more good deeds. We can't simply be a better version of ourselves. We're, we owe too much. And even the things that we think we're doing with pure reasons are actually tinged with sin and selfish motives. What's some more bad news? Here's some more bad news. If you reach the judge and you haven't paid your debts you will be recipients of the fires of judgment that Jesus promises. That's a lot of bad news, isn't it? What will we do? Well, here's the bummer, right? Nothing we can do. But God, see, now here's the good news. You can settle 
the account before you get to the judge. But it's not you who pays. It's Jesus. Isn't that what we said earlier? Someone is going to be judged because of your sin. It's so egregious that it must be met with holy recompense. It just must. Now, the only way you can settle up is by giving your life and allegiance to a Christ who came and was submerged into God's wrath in your place. It is only then that he will deposit his righteousness into your bankrupt account. The opportunity to make things right and to repent still remains, and it is right now, because that offer will not last forever. Past this life, there are no second chances. At some point, my friend, you will stand before the throne of God. You have a divine appointment, all of us, without exception, and he will call for payment of our wickedness and rebellion, and he should because he's holy and just. What will we say when we stand before him? What will he say to us? Will he say, I don't know you. Be gone, you worker of lawlessness. Or will he say, your debt has been paid by Jesus the Christ. Enter into my presence. Friend, are you reconciled to him? You know you're on your way to the magistrate, right? You guys know that? Have you settled the account by casting yourself on this glorious, wrath-absorbing Christ? Wait no longer, because he could, he could very well call you to account this very night. Throw yourself at his feet, and he'll forgive you and give you grace upon grace. His streams of mercy never run dry. There are only two choices— Jesus calls over and over and over again for a response. And as always, the choice is either him and his kingdom or self in the world. There's no neutrality. There's no half payments. There's no half devotion. There's no partial allegiance. He calls for your all. And he should, shouldn't he? Here's the peace that Jesus brings. It's peace with God. He is the Prince of Peace, but his main goal is to bring peace with God, to bring reconciliation to those who are at enmity with God. This is why he came. This is why he endured the flood. This is why he drank the cup of God's wrath until very last drop was gone, and he flipped it over and said, it is finished. Some of you have your priorities backwards. Some of you would rather have peace with the world and peace with people and peace with sin and be at enmity with God, or push Jesus' demands to a place of unimportance. Isn't that backwards? Jesus says that peace with God is all you need. Peace and reconciliation with the Father and placement in His family as daughter or son outshines hatred and enmity from even our closest natural bonds. And I say this, look, I say this as somebody who I have an entire side of my family who won't talk to me because of my identification with Jesus. I know what it costs, but you know what? When you lose that family, God places you in one that's even better because it's eternal. Would you see what God, what Jesus did to get to you? Jesus Christ came into the world to be plunged into the very wrath of God. We look at verse 49 and go, why does he have to judge? 
But we should realize the gravity of our sin and read on to verse 50 and be astounded that we could be loved like that. What love is this that God, the God we rebelled against, came into the world to take on wrath that we deserve so that we could know him and be reconciled to him and be loved by him and love him back and live with him for eternity? In light of that, my friend, surely he can't ask too much. Surely nothing is off the table for us to sacrifice. Look what he did. Is he not worth it all? 